last week with this point right here that we have redemption in Christ. And so I don't want to dwell too much on it. I hit on it uh, before we ended class. And if you think about it, there are several different phrases and, and uses of this word redemption that kind of come to mind. There's a, you know, it, it really re- talks about the, the repairing of a relationship that we have with God. And that only in Christ can we have this reparation of a relationship that was really split in two when sin came into our lives. And it really kind of goes back and, and echoes the beginning of, of sin coming into the world. And in Genesis chapter 3 that we know when, when Adam and Eve when you committed those first, that first sin of disobedience in the garden, that that really kind of set off the, the wildfires of sin throughout all of, of humankind. And through Adam's sin entered the world, of course, we know later on, and we'll echo that as we think about in Ephesians, that through Christ... Through Christ came salvation. And so through one man sin entered the world, through one man being Christ, being incarnate, uh, salvation came unto mankind. So as Paul talks to the Ephesian church here in Ephesians chapter 1, he talks about the idea that redemption comes to those who are in Christ Jesus. When we are in this position, when we're in this place of importance, when we have changed our lives in the ways and the fashion that we've talked about before about how do we get in Christ, when we become in Christ, we have be- obtained, we have been given redemption by God. You know, and redemption, as I talked about last week, is, is defined as giving something in the, in the place of or redeeming someone or something. It's, it's regaining or gaining possession of, of something in exchange for payment or a clearing of debt. Uh, you kind of think about your house. When you finally pay that house off, you have redeemed the mortgage to the point where you can pay off that debt and that house is fully yours. And like, uh, like that in our lives, the sin that has kind of been welling up inside of us, that has built upon our backs and the frustration and the, and the, the evils that we've, those choices that we've made in our lives, is cleared away. And God, in, in fact, buys back us. Now, he's purchased it with a price. John three sixteen. he gave his only son so that we would not die, but we'd have everlasting life. It's Jesus' blood that came into the redeeming power that gave us redemption. But when we think about redemption, we think about the, the reconciliation or the reunion of two things that may have once been separated, but then are now bought and brought back together. In their lives. And so you kind of have that imagery in your mind when you think about redemption. We equate redemption a lot of times with salvation, right? I mean, that's what we think when we hear and read about we, we have redemption in Christ. We think automatically, boom, of salvation. And they, although being two different words, kind of echo and give us the same meaning. And that's the fact that when we were once saved, uh, we were once lost, we are now saved. Once we, we were once disconnected, we are now reconnected. We were once separated, we are now back unified. And so these terms obviously being used interchangeably somewhat have a little bit of a different definition, but their usages to us as Christians become pretty synonymous because it talks about the reconciliation of our lives where once we had one disrepaired, disjointed relationship with God, that because of Christ's blood, we have been brought into redemption. We have been redeemed. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You know that that song we sing? And that's very true with regard to our lives. And Paul says this redemption only occurs, only occurs to those who are in Christ. 
And so once we experience and once we obey and do those things which bring us into Christ, one of the tremendous spiritual blessings which we're able to obtain that is freely given to us because we have been obedient in the salvation is that idea of redemption. Our souls, our spiritual lives have been redeemed. Where we were once lost, we're now found. You know, and so this redemption allows us to obtain something where we have died to our sins. We begin a new life with regard to living in Christ uh, at that point in baptism. And God has redeemed us, as I said at the end of class last week, because He sees our lives as being something of value. In fact, He sees our lives as being so valuable that He gave up His only Son for our lives. Because He wanted to redeem us. He wanted to bring us back into his fold. But the only way, the only way we have this spiritual blessing of redemption is in Christ. Let's move on and see some of these other ones here. There's a couple more that that we see in chapter 1 of of Ephesians. Fifthly here, we see that being in Christ, one of the spiritual blessings that we have, one of the spiritual blessings we obtain is that we have this revelation that God reveals to us the mystery of, that was once obscured, that was once unknown, that maybe was not really understandable. But when we are in Christ, we understand that. Christ is the effulgence. That's a word that I found in the notes. I like that word. And I don't know if you, anybody know what effulgence means? Effulgence. See, that's why I had to look at the word up. I was, I was, I'm teaching this from some notes. Um, as I, I said at the beginning of class, that Brother Paul Vining, who is my father's kind of spiritual mentor, did on this lesson series. And he used this word, and I thought, what is effulgence? So, of course, I did what every, you know, blue-blooded American is going to do nowadays. I got on the computer. All right, now, it used to, Wayne, you, you go to the dictionary on the wall, right? And you pull that dictionary off the shelf, and well, you don't use the dictionaries anymore. No, I Googled it. I Googled it. So I Googled it. What is effulgence? And I said, okay, effulgence definition. Bam, boom, Google finds a definition quick. You know, I don't know if you've tried Googling a word before, but it's awesome. Who cares about Webster's Dictionary anymore? You got Google, right? So effulgence, effulgence means this. It means that is the giving off blinding radiant rays of light. Effulgence. Christ is the effulgence. That's E-F-F-U-L-G-E-N-C-E. E-F-F, if you're writing notes, you want to know. I think this is a great word. E-F-F-U-L-G-E-N-C, the effulgence. Christ is the effulgence of everything that God was and planned for man. Think about that. God gives off this radiant light uh, through his only son. And Christ came to this world and he gives off this blinding, radiant light unto all those things which may have once been hidden. Wayne, you know, you think about the Old Testament and all these prophecies that were about Christ's coming. These people were probably scratching their heads and thinking, what are you talking about, Isaiah? Suffering servant? That doesn't make sense to me. Isaiah 53. Imagine hearing Isaiah give that prophecy. And you're thinking, okay, this could apply to some things going on right now. I kind of see the parallels possibly of of some of those things that that are going on right now. But when you think about the, the ultimate effect of it, it wasn't revealed until later on, was it? Of the breadth and the depth of what God was really wanting us to know and what God really had planned for us. 
From the Garden of Eden, you know, right when, when Adam and Eve had sinned, Christ, I mean, God began at that point in time revealing really his plans for mankind. I mean, it had been placed from the foundation before, you know, the creation really occurred. God had all these plans in place. But it began to be revealed at the point when the fall of man occurred and the, the need for redemption, we just talked about redemption, the need for redemption was very apparent with regard to Adam and Eve, right? They had once walked with God in the garden. They had this personal, this realistic relationship with God. And once they fell, once they realized they were standing in their nakedness, once they realized all these things that God had tried to warn them and keep them and protect them from, God began revealing his will to them to let them see really what his plan was, that plan of salvation, that scheme of redemption began all the way back in the Garden of Eden when, when, Christ talked, when God talked about Christ coming and ultimately stepping on the serpent's head. Remember that prophecy in Genesis chapter 3? Talking about the, the scorn of woman and all those things, but the fact that the serpent would ultimately be laid waste. He would be stepped on. He would be smashed and you see that prophecy going all the way through scriptures about the man of God coming, the son of God coming, God preparing for his people, the fact that he would be reconciled, there would be a sacrifice in the place of all those echoes of the scheme of redemption from the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament began. And so that became a mystery with regard to how it actually would occur. The other part of the mystery really kind of, as you think about it, you can, you can kind of search for the word mystery in scriptures. A bunch of times it's going to pop up. It's really interesting to, to think about the mystery of God. What is this mystery of God that he's talking about? Well, the mystery of God also is alluded to and the idea that it's going to be all-inclusive. It's not just going to be the Jewish people anymore. In the Old Testament, you have the, the shadows of, uh, of, of God selecting his one true people, right? The Jewish nation. And so, if you weren't an Israelite, then you weren't really experiencing the, the joys and the pleasures and the blessings, the, those even spiritual blessings at the time, because you weren't part of God's chosen people. Well, the mystery of God was that in the New Testament, when Christ would come, Christ would allow the revelation to occur that that plan and that message, that scheme of redemption was not just for the Jews. It was not just for those Israelite nation, but it was, in fact, for all nations. And so Paul points out here in Ephesus, and in, to the, those in Ephesus that the mystery would be made known unto all men. And in fact, if you look in chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, it's going to tell us there in Ephesians what, Christ, what God is trying to relay to us with regard to this mystery. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of his trespasses. That's verse 7. Jump down to verse 8, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, that being Christ, with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of times, and that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heavens and things on the earth. In him also we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. There in verses 8 through 10, we have been given the revelation as a spiritual blessing of being in Christ. We have this revealed will of God. It has been made known unto us. It's no longer a mystery to us. 
And in Christ, we're going to be able to understand the wonderful abundance of what it really means to be a part of God and a part with Christ. And Christ started it all as being the effulgence of all things of what God's will would be. As he radiated and as he exposed those things as being the light of the world, Christ continually allowed us to understand more and more and more. Think back. Christ himself said, I'm the light of the world, right? He kind of said, I'm going to reveal things. John chapter 8, verse 12, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And on down in John chapter 12, he talks about being the light here on this earth. And he says, so Jesus said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. It echoes down there. I love the, the idea of Isaiah 53 is echoed there a couple of verses down. It says, this is what it means. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet when he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You see, the arm of the Lord... The, the majesty of God was revealed through the light of Christ coming into this world, showing us that we can all be reconciled. We can all come to Jesus. We can all come and be a part of God. And this mystery was revealed to us, and so that once we become partakers in it, once we have obeyed, once we have taken on Christ as part of it, we start experiencing the true revelation of the mystery. Now, I love a good mystery. I do. I think that's part of the reason why I became a prosecutor, because I could be a lawyer and I could still be involved in helping bring to light, you know, the resolution of a case and even help solve cases sometimes, you know, I get involved in the investigations aspect sometimes on cases before. So it's kind of neat to be a part of those kind of things. Uh, I was always the one who w watched like Law and Order and, and all those kind of cop dramas. Still watch them, actually. Monica hates them, but I, well, I still watch them on occasion. Uh, it's amazing. You think I get enough of it, Wayne, but I don't. Um, I like those kind of things. I like trying to figure out the whodunits of this world. And so these mysteries have always kind of appealed to me. Well, as a Christian, as a Christian, I can only imagine what it would have been like before having the real, revealed will of God, before having this scripture in front of me. But you see, that's what the first century experienced. They had this mystery kind of set up amongst them where they didn't have the whole revelation yet. They didn't have these things written down. But Christ was able to them step by step reveal what God wanted with them in, in, in their lives. He was able to tell them what the expectations were and what God's plan was for them. And the, the prophets before him had done the same thing. And, and, and you know, you just kind of continue seeing it uh, throughout the history of the world. But until you become a member in Christ, it really doesn't all jive. It doesn't really all come together. You don't have that full knowledge because I think you don't have that experience. Sometimes in order to really understand something, you have to experience it. Unfortunately, in order to understand what it's like to go through a very traumatic diagnosis, we can sympathize. You know, I can say, I'm so sorry you're going through this. I can tell you that I, you know, and, and I can sit there and cry with you. I can hold your hand. I can hug. I, I, can, I can be there with you, but I don't truly understand it until I go through it. Do you understand what I'm saying? I don't think we understand that. It's still somewhat of an unknown to us. And we can sympathize because of our love and our compassion and all those other character traits. But you don't truly understand it. It is not truly revealed to you until you go through it. I think it's very similar with regard to this mystery that was revealed through the ages, was given us information through all those things. But you don't truly understand it and grasp it until you experience it. Once you are in Christ... 
you experience what Christ was talking about. Once you are in Christ, you understand there's neither Greek nor Jew. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither slave or, or, or owner or, or non-slave. You, you, you realize there's no distinguishing, at least you should realize that, whenever you are in the blood of Jesus Christ. You understand that distinction. It can be revealed to us. It can be trying to talk to us. It can kind of be explained to us. But once you are truly in Christ, you are clothed with Christ in your life, you're going to really understand at that point in time that the distinction and the meaningfulness, the, the impact of God's salvation upon you is tremendous. It's so much more than it's expected. And once you're in Christ, you truly understand and see what God's will is. That mystery of Christ was revealed to you so that we can always understand. You think back, you know, Christ revealed these things and, and, and God revealed certain things to the ages to his disciples and the apostles. I mean, you even see, think back to Matthew chapter 16 when it talks about that, you know, Jesus makes, I mean, Jesus asks, asks uh, Peter about the found, you know, who am I? And, and uh, Peter makes that confession, you're Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And, and Jesus says, you know, it's upon this foundation, it's upon this rock which I will build my church. And it's not this world that's revealed it to you, Peter, but it's my Father in heaven that revealed it to you. You know, there were things revealed to them about God's will, about God's plan, about his purpose. But until they really became a part of Christ, when they really had that beginning of the church and when they became Christians and kind of all comprised in it, it's kind of when it all started clicking to the disciples. They had knowledge, they had information but they didn't truly understand it. And so what we see here is that unlike the God of the world that blinds the minds of unbelievers, we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, you know, we don't want to follow that God, right? The God of the world blinds unbelievers. He doesn't want them to follow after God. He doesn't want them to see the light of the gospel of the glory of God. But what you do see is that from the darkness, you know, from, from the, the life of sin, Christ changes us. And once we follow through with that and becoming a part of Christ, we are in Christ, we truly understand at that point in time God's purpose and plan with regard to what he wants us in life. When we are in Christ, we experience the spiritual blessing of this, this revelation of the mystery of those things which he wants us to follow. We also see this, verses 11 through 12. I've already read verse 11, but it says, "...in him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose." who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In Christ, we obtain an inheritance. We obtain an inheritance. We become a child of a king. We become, we already talked about the adoption, right? So it's kind of like we, we experience the spiritual blessing of being a part of the family. Well, it's not just being part of the family. We have an inheritance now. Now, I mean, I don't know. I tell my mom and dad all the time, I don't, I don't want you to ever think that you need to leave me anything when you die. They've given me enough, you know, with regard to my non-monetary or non-physical, non-material blessings in life, and I'd rather take that. That's enough of an inheritance to me. So many times though, in this world, you see the idea of wanting to leave behind something for your family. Um, 
Good biblical stories. The prodigal son's a great one, you know, where you had the, the prodigal son deciding, I'm going to go ahead and take my inheritance now, and I'm going to go ahead and go and use it and kind of enjoy it. And uh, you saw him live it up, and we saw what happened, the repercussions there. But the father, of course, wanted to provide for his family. He wanted to provide for his sons. That's what you see there about the father's aspect and his, his uh, viewpoint in that story. Uh, you see that echoed really throughout the world. If you were to go to law school and, and study wills and estates and, and all that kind of stuff, which I really would rather not even talk about or think about, um, it's convoluted, it's complex about trying to leave things behind. But you kind of have this idea that when you have this, you know, this last will and testament, so that when you leave, you are leaving behind and bequeathing certain things to certain individuals, whatever it may be. So you're covered with regard to your physical, material lives. You're leaving behind an inheritance, some of us cherish things that are left behind by those that we've loved and we've cared for, our, our parents, our grandparents, even great-great-grandparents, or you can go further. You've got something passed down through the, the years, and you really appreciate and you enjoy this inheritance, something that you have been given, something that you have been blessed with. You know, it's, it's the idea of what, what, as a Christian, how does this apply to, to us with regard to our inheritance? So you think about before you were in Christ, if you, you, you compare it to here what we see in Ephesians chapter 1, it, you really don't have an inheritance, spiritually speaking. Well, I mean, I guess you may have some inheritance. Uh, you may inherit a, a physical torment or spiritual torment for, you know, ever and ever because you kind of have given that as, as being passed down. So spiritually speaking, you may have some type of inheritance. It's not going to be a good one if you're not in Christ. Well, here... Paul talks about the idea that once we are in Christ, we are able to experience and have an inheritance, an inheritance from God. And so when you think about obtaining an inheritance, obtaining this special bequeath, uh, this special um, blessing that's been passed down to us, what exactly is it? Well, what we know is, is that it's going to be something that's going to be under his will, under his blessings. And Paul tells us and reveals to us here in Ephesians that the idea of being in Christ gives us the pathway and the ability to have this inheritance as we approach and as we think about what God is. And there's an echo over in chapter 3, verse 6. Uh, a lot of times when you think about inheriting or, or having this inheritance, chapter 3, verse 6, um, when we, and we're going to get to that in the next lesson whenever we get to it. But um, the idea that, that Paul is talking about Gentiles being what fellow heirs with us according to the promise. And so what, what are we inheriting here? Well, we're inheriting the promises that God has given to all those who are faithful and obedient. We're inheriting those things which God has blessed us with, spiritually speaking, because we have decided to follow Jesus. We have decided to become in Christ and, and join together with Him. And so because of that, we have obtained an inheritance something that's incorruptible, something that's spiritual. We're not talking about physical. We're not talking about money here. Nothing we can really spend on this world. But we're obtaining an inheritance, though, that's much deeper and much stronger and more important than we probably could ever understand or explain. Josh.
That's good. Good. Good points. Very, very good points, Josh. Uh, I love the parallel with regard to the Levites. I think it's a great parallel to think about. And, uh, you know, some of you, some of you get caught up on what are we going to inherit. I don't know. It probably leads to the most bitter squabbles between um, brothers and sisters and, and families ever is when, you know, a parent passes away and they're, they're trying to, to bicker over who's going to take what or who's going to inherit what or who's going to get what. And, and, and I understand that there's some things that mean more emotional to other people. Unfortunately, it, it brings into so many different materialistic type of, of discussions. But you're right with regard to the inheritance of the Levites. I love that. That's a great analogy. And for, you may not have heard them, but he, he alluded to back in the Old Testament, you know, the 12 tribes were divided up and the 12 tribes, of course, were given land and property. However, really the 12th tribe being the tribe of Levi. Um, of course, if you remember Manasseh and Ephraim, they got double portion. And I don't do a huge history lesson there, but of course, instead of Joseph, his two sons were the ones who got those lands appropriated to them. And then God chose the Levites, of course, to be his spiritual, his spiritual tribe. And that spiritual tribe didn't have any kind of belongings. They didn't have any kind of physical land or they didn't inherit anything physically speaking. In fact, they were supposed to be provided for by the people because of being God's priestly tribe. Uh, the priestly tribe was to derive their, their sustenance from the service of all the people. And so their, their inheritance, as Josh says, was, was really from the Lord. It's from God. And so you had that kind of parallel. And I love that the parallel that we have. We are a priestly tribe. We are a royal priesthood is the way that Peter talks about us as Christians. And as being a royal priesthood, the, the concept there is, is that our focus should always be on those things that are spiritual. And we are too often beside ourselves with regard to the physical. You think about it around us. We get so focused on what we're going to purchase or buy or, or what we're going to invest in. And while all those things aren't necessarily inherently bad or evil, our focus too often comes off of those things which are spiritual in nature. We need to be focused on the spiritual instead of the physical. And much like the tribe of Levi, our inheritance should be spiritually based, that's what we should be looking for. As the royal priesthood of God, our focus, our importance should be those things which are spiritual in nature, not necessarily physical in nature. It's going to be according to the purpose and the will of God. And the only way for us to really understand what that is is to you know, dive in and, and, and study and to, to understand what the Scriptures have to say with regard to our lives. And we understand that we uh, inherit. If we're going to inherit, it's going to be in accordance with the terms of His will not ours. And God's will for us, of course, is always to, uh, you know, it's pretty much implicit that we must obey in order to obtain uh, inheritance from God. And our obedience will be ultimately for God's glory in the end. You know, I'm going to inherit. I'm going to inherit something. And as, a, as being a member in Christ, as being someone who is a part of Christ, my inheritance is not going to be just by myself. In fact, I'm going to inherit with many others. I'm going to enjoy a mutual inheritance, a shared inheritance maybe. It's not necessarily something that we perceive as just being for us. And as we talk about chapter 3 in a moment of Ephesians, you're going to see the, the idea that, uh, that this inheritance is not just joined with those who are of Jewish or, or Israeli descent. Uh, it's really the, the mutual joint inheritance of the Jews and the Gentiles. It was everyone had this opportunity. Everyone has this ch choice to uh, inherit from God. And we obtain this inheritance as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. We have this inheritance because we have Christ. We are in Christ. Real quickly, seventh, 
One of the spiritual blessings we see in chapter 1, and again, there's going to be some other ones we talk about in other chapters as we see the impact of being in Christ. But in chapter 1 here, verses 13 through 14, we see that one of the things we have, one of the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ is gaining the seal of the Holy Spirit. uh, Josh alluded to this a moment ago. Before Jesus left this earth, he comforted his disciples, all the apostles and the disciples that were with him there. He, he comforted them with the idea that I'm going to leave. I'm leaving. But when I leave, I will send unto you the comforter. I'm going to send to you the spirit. I'm going to send to you some support so that you're going to be able to have something when I leave. You're not going to be left alone. You're not going to have this thought that, oh, well, Jesus is gone, so it's over. No, there's it's a perpetual existence of the spiritual impact on our lives is seen by the existence of the Holy Spirit and the impact of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's why when you think about Acts chapter 2, verse 38, when, when Peter told them on the day of Pentecost to repent and believe, uh, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the mission of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, that meant something, and it should still mean something to us. That gift of the Holy Spirit is something that helps us understand God is still active, living, working. He's breathing around us. Now, I'm not talking about in a miraculous form or fashion always. Now, in the first century, we see that occurred. I mean, that was pretty evident. If you read the Scriptures in the New Testament, you cannot help but see that the the Holy Spirit was very active in a miraculous way and format. Why? Because they needed that affirmation. They needed that that confirmation of what the speakers and what, what everyone was teaching and preaching was, in fact, from God. The thing is, nowadays, as you think that the, the revealed Word of God, as 1 Corinthians 10, that which is perfect has come, we can enjoy that same affirmation, that same spiritual, spiritual affirmation in our lives. Why? Because we have the confidence to know that those things which are being taught, those things which are being said from the pulpit or in the Bible class are from God when we compare it and we see it with regard to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit as the comforter doesn't just make us feel good. We've got to get past that idea of the comforter. I mean, yeah, he's going to give us that feeling of relief or that feeling where we, 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 we have a, a confidence or an assurance. I mean, that's a great feeling, right, whenever you are confident in what you believe and what you're being taught or even what you are teaching. It's good to have that feeling. But the comfort of the Holy Spirit is something more of a confidence and an assurance intellectually with regard to knowledge, with regard to adequate proof, so that when we hear and when we obey something, we know for sure. It's not just a feeling. It is a proof. It is an, an a, a intellectual assurance that what God has said, in fact, is. What God wants should be. And God helps us understand with the Holy Spirit there that as we are in Christ, we are able to enjoy this confidence of being joined together with him. And that's what Paul's talking about here in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 12. It says, We've obtained inheritance. I mean, I'm sorry, verse 13 and 14. In him, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him. That's in Christ. You were sealed in Christ 
with the Holy Spirit of promise. He was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. I love the way how Paul ties all this stuff together here as he's, he's talking about the spiritual blessings that we have. The seal of the Holy Spirit is the confirmation, is the assurance of those things which we have already talked about before. You see there, it is the pledge of our inheritance. It's the pledge that we have inherited something spiritual. We have that spiritual blessing of inheritance. The seal of the Holy Spirit is given to us with respect to a view of the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. How else better for God to give us something so that we can look at it and we can know from seeing it that our lives mean something. We've been redeemed. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Well, how can we know? How can we feel so secure? How can we feel so sure that we have been redeemed? It's because we have the seal of the Holy Spirit stamped upon our forehead. We have it sealed upon our hearts. Whatever kind of analogy we want to think about, the seal of the Holy Spirit is placed upon our spiritual lives to indicate we have an inheritance, that we are a part of God's own people, and that we are enjoying the redemption through the blood of Jesus. When we are in Christ, we enjoy the spiritual blessing of being sealed by the Holy Spirit. Think about what a seal is. Back in Old Testament days, we could, we could do kind of a word study on seals. You know, uh, kings would oftentimes seal their correspondence. Why would they do that? To show, in fact, that it was, in fact, from the king. So they'd have their own signature. They'd have a signet ring. They would usually press down upon some kind of a wax, and they'd create a wax seal on that letter or that correspondence. You see some examples in the Old Testament, specifically off the top of my head in the book of Naaman, or not in the book of Naaman, but in the story of Naaman, uh, when you talk about the seal of that, that correspondence, and that it was sealed, I believe, with the king's signet ring. There's other ones, I believe, that you think about uh, in the Old Testament. But the seal would indicate the authority. It would indicate the fact that the, the, the true source of, of who that correspondence came from was, in fact, the king. Other times, seals would also indicate possession, possession. And so you could kind of see how that would, uh, the possession of the letters, possession of authority. So when you think about a seal with regard to um, the, the historical usage of a seal, a, a seal would usually denote ownership or authority. Well, that makes sense with regard to the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, how else would God denote and give us the authority that he has? How else would he show to us that we, in fact, are, as he says, and Paul says in verse 14, part of God's own possession? Well, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. We have the seal of the Holy Spirit on our lives to indicate that we belong to God. What a great spiritual blessing that is. Now, I think it would be great if it was visible, all right? You're visual, maybe we go around, we'd have a, you know, can you imagine just going around with a big seal on your head if you're a Christian? Everybody knows, okay, he's a Christian, he's a Christian, he's not a Christian, he's a Christian, all right, he's not a Christian, she's not a Christian, all right, she's not there yet. You know, you kind of have a, an indication, it'd be great to have that, but it's not about physicality. It's not about having that exposure, physically speaking, it's all about the spiritual blessings that we have. But that's really what we have in Christ, we have that, that seal. We have that possession of who God is. I, I have a seal, or there's a seal hanging up in my uh, division at the, church, at, the, at the work in my office area. And it's the seal, great seal of Alabama. 
Y'all have probably seen that. I mean, we're, we're in Montgomery after all, so you see a lot of seals probably around the state. And some of you who may be even working in state offices have seen the great seals of Alabama postered and plastered up on the walls, right? And so there's actually a law. You cannot reproduce or you cannot have anything made of the seal without permission from the state of Alabama. I think it's very interesting. But the reason is, is because when you have that seal up on the wall, it indicates and shows that, in fact, this is a state office. This is state property. And so you have the seal that is placed there for that. Likewise, when we are in Christ, when we're a part of Christ's body, when we are a part of who Christ is, we have the seal of the Holy Spirit. I think it's interesting here in verse 13, it actually gives us kind of the the plan of salvation of how to to obtain this seal. I love the way that kind of outlines there in verse 13. It says, of course, you know, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth. All right, you got listening, hearing, right? We, we, could, we could sing the song that Doug does with the kids. You hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized in the water, rise up again to walk across and live like you ought to. And you see the parallel here in Ephesians chapter 1 with regard to this plan of salvation, hearing the message of truth. We're listening to it, right? The gospel of our salvation, believing you were sealed with him and the Holy Spirit of promise. Well, the, the whole believing aspect here, and you can get a lot of people talking, well, it's just belief only. No, that's not really it. When you're hearing it, it creates the faith, the, cra- the proper faith, when you look at it, biblical faith, uh, creates obedience. And so obedience means you're going to obey everything. If you truly believe God, if you truly are believing, a believing uh, Christian, a believing person, that's going to lead to actually obedience. And so you see the whole chain of of, of the scheme of redemption, the, 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 the plan of salvation here comprised here, the idea that you've got to hear this message of truth, the gospel of our salvation. We know the gospel, the, the, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. And so when you hear these things, you understand, you believe them. And by believing them, you then obtain that seal with the Holy Spirit. And so this coincides really with Acts chapter 2, verse 38, the idea that the Holy Spirit comes to us. We, uh, we are able to be partakers of this wonderful blessing of the Holy Spirit once we have followed and obeyed those things which God wants in our lives. And so you see here, seventh, this spiritual blessing in Christ is gaining the seal of the Holy Spirit. When we are in Christ, we can enjoy being sealed, being God's possession, being part of those things which God has commanded for us in our lives. Josh. Sure. Yeah, and I think, you know, of course, I call that the agency principle because what, legally speaking, you're an agent for someone whenever they tell you to kind of act on their behalf. You're kind of their proxy. 
you know, with regard to things. You're treated in the same way or they should be giving you the same respect in the same manner as if the king himself had gone. And so Nehemiah, as you said, when he went back to, uh, with regard to the building, rebuilding of the walls and the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem, yeah, he was given pretty much the, the equality with the king. Pretty much you treat him like you treat me because he is from me. He is my agent uh, there. And you've got that aspect with regard to us as Christians, I, I believe 100%. The seal of the Holy Spirit kind of places that upon our lives as being a spiritual blessing of the fact that we are united with him. We are united with God in Christ. And so when we experience that in our lives, we're able to see and we're able to enjoy all the wonderful things just as if we had never been separated to begin with. You got that seal. You got that approval. Next week, we're going to look at uh, chapters uh, chapters 2, 3, and 4, I hope. Uh, real quickly as we look at how Paul deals with other things in this book uh, and kind of give a survey of the last couple of chapters as he talks about being in Christ. I encourage you, read the rest of the book of Ephesians. I think it's a good little study. And as you think about and focus on what it means to be in Christ, some of these things are going to pop out at you because the phrase in Christ or in him or in Christ Jesus are used so frequently in this book, it's kind of hard to miss uh, exactly the implications where Paul's talking about the importance of being in Christ, in your Christian life, and all the things that stem from that. Appreciate your kind attention. We'll see you next week.